guys are thinking I'm brave. Have an iPad in the baptistry. Lance, why don't we act right? The question was like a bullet coming from the back seat of a church van. I was 23 years old. I had my first job in the ministry. And Jamie and I got volunteered or told to drive the church van, to drive around and pick up kids whose parents didn't bring them to services. And we had these two siblings. And these kids trained me for Kip and Callie. They were a little bit hyperactive. Let's be generous and say that. And so I thought, let's try sticks and carrots. And I would tell them, if you're good for a month, we'll go to Dairy Queen before I take you home. And we had been to Dairy Queen the week before, and so the previous week, they felt like their carrot that I had laid out was some time away. And so they were a little more rambunctious than they typically were. And I think I might have even yelled, even though I'm not typically a screamer. I think I might have yelled. I was at my wit's end. And then this precious little girl asked me that question, and it broke my heart. She said, why don't we act right? And my first thought was, me too. I know that I don't act right. And I know that you and me are not alone because the Apostle Paul feels the same way. He says, those things that I want to do, I don't do those things. Those things I don't want to do, those things I keep doing. And then the Apostle Paul says, I am a wretched man. And so there's this question that haunts us. It's like that splinter that gets into our brain. It's like that itch you can't scratch. It's the question you return to time after time. It drives you, it follows you, it chases you, it pushes you. It's the question. And we all know the question. We've all asked the question. It seems like it's always just under the surface. Show up at church. Hi, how are you? Fine. You? But after you get past the surface, you start asking things like, is God pleased? Am I good enough? What do I have to do? Why can't I act right? And so man has always asked this type of question, um, particularly after moments in which we fell. I think of Adam as he's cowering in the bushes and he's clothed in the shame of fig leaves. I think of those times that we fall prey to that sin that crouches just outside our door as it did for Cain, as he struck out with violence against his brother. I think of David leering across the rooftop at the married woman on the other side of the neighborhood. I think of Peter denying the Savior the third time. I think of Judas betraying him with a kiss. And so James describes us in this way, in James chapter 4, 1 through 3. He says, "What, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And many of us feel like James has peered into our lives on our very worst days and that we've all been found out for who we really are. 
And so the situation and the details may change. It, it may be a well-known uh, story like that of King David that everybody knows. It could be a secret sin. But we all know that moment when we catch a glimpse of ourselves in the mirror and we feel like we're that person that James has just laid out and we know that we're not the person that we need to be. And so today, I come to you from a special place. That question is what has driven me here. This has been called a watery grave. It's been called a symbol of the washing away of sin. It's been called a new birth. It's a place where the old, fallen, sinful man in the shape of Adam goes into this water to die. And then the new man in the shape of Christ rises up out of this water. It's been likened to the blood of Jesus in which we're washed. 1 Peter 3, starting in 20, puts it this way. He says, This water now saves you too. Not the removal of dirt, from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, pools of water then have always held a place of importance for God's people for millennia. Different Jewish groups would maintain pools that were called mikvahs. And to this day, as excavation is performed around Jerusalem, they still find these small pools skirting the ancient walls of the city. Jesus' own public outreach was preceded by that of John the baptizer. And John went out into the wilderness, but he didn't only go out into the wilderness, he went to the waters. So today, I stand in this place. And I ask the question, why do places like this have such a draw for us. Why do we yearn for a place like this? Now let me tell you what this place is not. This is, this is not a place to go for self-help. I'm not a life coach who calls you to perform some sort of weird trust fall into the water so that you'll become a self-actualized human being and you can realize all of your full human potential. Okay, This is not a place to join a social group. Okay, I'm not a salesman who's just trying to get you to join up and say, what have I got to do to get you in, in the water? I can throw in a potluck every month, and we promise to shorten the sermon when the Cowboys play the early game. Okay? It's not what this is, and this year it's not worth it. Um, you don't come here to straight out a short-term issue. I've seen people that it's tempting. They're going through a short-term thing, in life, and they're like, well, you know, I'm having some trouble with my boss now, and I think my kid's about to drop out of the eighth grade, and I think my wife's cheating on me, so uh, I think I need to go get baptized to straighten these things out. That's not what this is. The water isn't magic. It's tap water, and it's from Hobbes, so it's very hard and minerally. Um, It doesn't pay off your credit card debt. It doesn't cause you to lose weight. It doesn't unclog the pores of your skin. So then what is this? Why is this such a compelling place? Well, if we're going to talk about the water, we have to talk about Acts chapter 2. So, Jesus has been crucified, and the city is abuzz with lots of rumors about him. By this point, he has appeared to hundreds of people, the risen Savior. He's walking, he's talking, he's eating. 
And the people have a lot of questions. They're saying, what does this mean? And why are his followers holed up in that upper room? Is he the Messiah? Why did he disappear again? When will he come back? And then on the day of Pentecost, there's this wind and there's fiery tongues and people can comprehend languages that they do not speak. And Peter, and it's always Peter, the bold one, the brash one, he gets up and he starts to preach. He starts to explain to them what is going on. And listen to what he says. He says, be assured of this. He says, know this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And at this point, the crowds interrupt him. They say, whoa, stop. And it says they were cut to the heart. And I can't help but to think way back in Leviticus 26, 19, that God warned them how far He would go to wake them up, to get their attention. And He says this, He says, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like irons and the ground beneath you like bronze. And so it's like God's people, the Israelites, have been living between iron and bronze, and now they're cut to the heart, and they ask the question, what shall we do? And so the crowd is a stand-in for that little girl in the bus. The crowd is a stand-in for me. The crowd is a stand-in for us. We are that crowd. They sing our song. They feel our pain. They ask our question. The question that drives us and haunts us. The question that is our iron sky and bronze earth, what shall we do? And church, I came here today, in this time, in this place, in this water, to say this, and I might shock you. Give up. You see, the law is good, but in revealing the law, God set a standard, and it is His righteous, perfect standard. And it's when you and I and Adam and the little girl in the bus and everybody else can never attain. We all fall short. And it's not the law's fault. The law is good and the law is perfect. But that is why religion and striving to please God with human effort and trying harder and white knuckling will never work. If it did work, we wouldn't need places like this. I wouldn't be standing here. I would be standing down there moralizing to you and reminding you of all the rules that you and I break. This water is a place of surrender. When we're cut to the heart and we're ready to turn from our old ways and we give up control, we surrender. In this water, God says, here's this beautiful gift. Here's this memory that you can cherish always. Here is this moment when you bowed your knee. Here is this moment of obedience when you followed me in to the grave and you waited for me to lift you up. Now, there's a preacher. Uh, it's an illustration. Preacher story. A lot of preachers have told it. I doubt it ever actually took place. But a minister and a congregate are standing in the water. And the preacher's about to baptize this guy. And the guy whispers to the preacher. And he says, what do I do? And the preacher smiles and whispers back, nothing. The only thing that you do is bow your knee. So our problem is that we overthink this place. It really isn't that hard. So I want to tell you about a man named Naaman. And Naaman had a disease. 
And most of you probably have read the story in 2 Kings chapter 5. And you may think the disease that Naaman had was leprosy. But you're only half right. Because he suffered from pride as well. So Naaman was a valiant warrior. And the Lord had given him a lot of victories. And in one of these victories, they, they take captive an Israelite little girl. And she becomes a servant to Naaman's wife. And one day, this young girl speaks up and she tells Naaman's wife, If only my master would see the prophet that is in Samaria. Then as a captive, she says something unthinkable. She says he would cure him of his leprosy. How could a servant, a nobody, we don't even know her name, make such a promise and have such great faith? And so Naaman goes to his king, the king of of, uh, Aram, and tells him this news. And says, can I go to this prophet in this foreign land? And the king loves his general. And he's excited. He says, yes, take gold and silver and clothing and go see this prophet. And I'm going to write you a note to give to to, uh, their king. And so he, he sends this note. And Naaman, and Naaman, a military man, a general, shows up at the king's palace. And he has this note. And this note says, I'm sending my servant, this is Naaman, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, of course, the king of Israel freaks out. This cutthroat warlord general shows up and demands a miracle. And the king tears his robe and says, Am I God? Can I bring the dead back to life? Why is he coming to me for a miracle? And then he begins to think, maybe this is just a pretense for going to war. Maybe he's trying to trick me. So Elisha the prophet hears about the king, that the king had torn his robe and he's sobbing, and Elisha shows up and he says, be cool. Okay, he doesn't really say be cool. But he says, send him to me. And he says, then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman shows up at Elisha's gate And Elijah basically doesn't even get off the couch. He sends a messenger. And the messenger tells Naaman this. He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And look at what Naaman does. Okay, He was given precise directions. It says, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And so Naaman has this vision of how God is supposed to work. And don't we do that? Okay, God, here's a plan. I'm going to do this, and you're going to bless me, and that's going to lead to this, and you're going to bless that, and then it's going to go here, and it's going to go here, and then I'm going to look up and say, Thanks, God. And you're going to say, that's my boy. And we say, okay, God, have you got the plan? Are we good? You don't think we do this? How about James and John and, the, and their mother? Jesus, come here. There's something that I need to let you know. Okay, you're going to come in your kingdom. And you're going to have, like, the main throne. And it's going to be right here, okay? And it's going to be great. That's, that's good on you, Jesus. But then I want one of my sons to be on, like, this other throne that's not quite as good as yours, but it's going to be right here. And then, and then I want my other son right here, okay? Have you got the plan, Jesus? Are we good now? How about Peter? Jesus tells them the gospel. He tells them what he is about to do. I'm going to get arrested. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. I mean, he tells them. And Peter says, no, no, no. That thing that you just said, that's not the plan. 
When they show up, it's not going to happen. We do this. We tell God how things should work. And look at what Naaman does. Naaman doesn't have a problem with the plan per se. He wants to nitpick with the details. It's like he says, okay, dipping in water sounds fine, and that's good, but I would prefer to do it back home because technically the waters back home are way cleaner. The Jordan's kind of nasty water. And so why would I go there to do it? Listen to what he says. He says, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, where he's from, better than all the waters of Israel, i.e. the Jordan? He says, Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And look at this. So he turned and went off in a rage. Look at what Naaman does. He says something that is factually true. The waters that he mentioned were known to be cleaner than the Jordan. And so he says a statement that is factually accurate, but because he's walking in disobedience to God, he is still dead wrong. But he had some wise friends, and his friends call him in. And they went to him, and they say, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan, seven times as the man of God had told him. He obeyed. He didn't have to do some great thing. He had to obey. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Sometimes we have to battle through pride. Sometimes we have to battle through telling God how to run his universe. We have to get over thinking we know better than God. Sometimes we have to surrender. just that feel-good moment. It's more than just a memory that we can post to Facebook. There is a supernatural thing that happens in this water. Peter tells the crowd about two distinct parts of a surrender. There's something that God takes and there's something that God gives. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, God takes away our sins. Blasted God. Not cleansed by the water, but cleansed by Christ. But it is in that moment that you come into contact with the sacrifice. The atoning bell rings. Something happens. Our debt is paid. Then there's something that God gives. And it's the perfect gift. The time of year that we just passed through is the time of year that we celebrate when Christ took on flesh. Incarnation. Of Christ. And think about this. When someone enters in to the waters, Christmas happens. God takes on flesh, not in the form of a child, in a manger, but in you. Because Peter tells us 
that the Holy Spirit is given as we're baptized, that it indwells with us. It's like God takes on flesh again. So this is a place where we give up control of our lives. This is a place where we say every breath, every thought, every deed belongs to the God that indwells within me. Think of, a, think of this as a marriage with even more commitment and even more closeness. This is a place where we name Jesus is Lord. He owns you. Now, I have a friend who, who uh, prior to ministry, flew Blackhawks for the Marine Corps. And during flight school, a group of the pilots had a day of leave, and so they, so they drove down to the beach. And one of the pilots got a sunburn, and he comes back, and his flight instructor is furious and threatens to press charges against this pilot. And this pilot said, on what grounds? Instructor says, you damage military property. You see, in flight school, pilots don't even own their own skin. It becomes property of the Marine Corps. The call to follow Jesus, the call of the water, is no less. He tells us to lay down our lives, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Paul says that we are bought with a price we are not our own. So let me ask you this. If you lived in a culture that surrendering to Christ would cost you everything, your family, your job, your freedom, and possibly your life, would you still do it? Is Jesus worth everything? I'm scared that it's easy in Lee County to choose Jesus because we assume that we, that we will have Jesus plus, that we'll have Jesus plus a beautiful, loving family, Jesus plus money in the bank, Jesus plus a regular middle-class life. What if you got Jesus plus nothing? An Italian general during a bloody civil war put it this way. He says, I offer neither pay nor quarter nor food. I offer only hunger, thirst, marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not merely his lips follow me. The cost of discipleship is great, and yet we're still drawn to the waters. And we wrestle with things like, what does surrender actually look like? How does this play out over time? After I come out of the water, what about the next day, and the next week, and the next month? And don't I wish that we could literally come out of the water a different person? Don't I wish that it was more dramatic? I wish that, that we all hopped up these stairs as frogs, and we jumped into the water, and we came out a prince. I wish that we all dove into the water as a ugly duckling, and we flew out a beautiful swan. But Jesus describes surrender to God in this way. He says, it's like a seed, and it has to fall to the ground and die. And seeds don't magically spring up overnight. They start growing, but they're underneath the surface of the ground. And even after they sprout up above the surface of the ground, it may be impossible to see growth from day to day. But they're growing. And for me, it may as well be a miracle that they grow. And don't we feel like that seed? We want to measure our growth in the last day or the last month or, or the last year. And it's slow and sometimes it's painful. But eventually, healthy seeds lead to a harvest. And that is when I think of all the ING words of the New Testament. About the process of what we are becoming. Second. Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of the Lord, listen to this church, are being transformed into His image 
with ever-increasing glory. Do you see that? It's a process. Coming up out of the water doesn't, doesn't land us there. We're not there yet. We are being transformed. And you might ask how. Well, let's read on. He says, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This process starts with a death. You're buried in the water. But that's what begins the transformation. Philippians 3.12 says this, Not that I have obtained all this or have arrived at, at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Even for Paul, it's a process. And so like that seed, we grow into this gift over time. One of the most enduring stories of all of literature is that of Sidney Carton and Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And Sidney Carton is the least likely person to be the hero of the story. He's kind of a ne'er-do-well. And yet, at the end of the novel, spoiler alert, it's 100 years old, so I don't feel bad. Um, At the uh, end of the novel, he trades his life for that of Charles. Now, Charles isn't even a friend of his. In fact, they're they're kind of rivals for the love of Lucy. And yet, Sidney Carton says... I'm going to trade my life for yours. Charles is sentenced to go to the guillotine. And so Sidney Carton, the night before, paces the streets of Paris back and forth. And he quotes from the Gospel of John, but it's the words of Jesus. All night long, before he lays down his life, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. All night long, he tells himself that verse. And that verse and that story sums up the challenge and the promise that I want to leave you with. The challenge is to lay down your life. The promise is that Christ won't leave you in the grave. Maybe you've stood here. Maybe you've made this kind of commitment to Christ. But you don't feel like you picked up your cross and surrendered daily to Him. Take a moment right now Go back in your mind's eye to that special day where you stood in the waters. I remember the day, my day, that I climbed into the water. And when the accuser, Satan, in my own mind, puts me on trial and questions me, when I'm in my own midnight of the soul, I interrupt what's going on in my mind. And I say, I have evidence that I would like to enter in. And I point to that day I point to that day when I loved Jesus more than I loved my own life. When I wanted Jesus to decide for me. And I remember that my conscience can be clear. Not because I removed dirt from my body, but because God has given me life. And maybe you've never stood here. And maybe this is not a commitment that you've ever publicly made. And maybe you need to stand here and feel the cleansing of the water. And maybe you need to publicly bow your knee and confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The promise is that we have a Savior who gives us new life. This is what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So it doesn't matter. If you've been here, but you need your church to surround you, and remind you, and point you back to that day, you can come as we stand and sing. If you've never been here, Today's your day because I'm already here. 
If today is the day that you need to make that commitment, then you are invited to come and do that.